Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 for our study tonight. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. I'm blessed that you guys are out on a Wednesday night to study the Bible, especially such a warm Wednesday evening, and you've chosen to, to be here. It almost felt hot. Oh, a little bit. You might say, close to it. So let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would really have your way in our, in our church this month and with this sexual integrity conference, God. We, we desire for you to, to move in our lives. And we thank you that we don't have to be overcome or discouraged because of who you are, Jesus. And that you're the light of the world and you dispel darkness. And as we look at this mystery of grace that you describe in your word, we pray that it would resonate with us tonight. I'm sure that we've got distractions, we've got difficulties, everybody has things that they're going through and thinking about. And Father, would you take those things away? Would you cause our hearts and our ears to be open? Pray that you would give encouragement where we need it, that you would strengthen us, that through our time together and time with you, that our inner man would be strengthened, that we would know your love in a greater way. So would you bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. The mystery of grace. And this chapter, Paul uses this word mystery several times in describing the grace of God. Now, when we think of the word mystery, we think of Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, try to figure out the, the murder mystery. And that's not the way this New Testament word is described. It's something that was previously unknown that's being revealed. It has to do with the truth that we can't come to understand it in our natural mind. Not that it doesn't make sense, not that it isn't logical, but that the truths of the kingdom of God, that there's a mystery to it in the sense of what makes it connect, what makes it resonate. It's a work, work of the Spirit. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life. You've heard the truth of God for some time. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home or were around a believer or your parents were believers and, and you could say the truth intellectually. You understood it from a logical perspective, but it hadn't hit home. It hadn't resonated until the Spirit of God did a work. The Spirit of God breathed into it. And so it's because of that that Paul uses this word mystery. It's a knowledge that we wouldn't know apart from the Spirit of God working in our lives. And it's deep for Paul. We'll find that it really resonates in his life. It's what gives him cause. It's what gives him reason. If you'll notice in verse 1 and also in verse 14, he uses this phrase, for this reason, for this reason. And first he's saying, for this reason, and he's going to talk about his time in prison. He's got such a great cause, he's got such a great reason that he's able to endure being a prisoner. And I think for us as believers and children of God, sometimes we've got to dig deep and go, what's my cause? Do I have a cause? Do I have a reason? Do I have a reason for being here on this planet? Do I have a reason for doing the things that I'm doing, for going to work and what I do inside of my family? Well, what's my cause and what's my reason? And Paul will tell us it is this mystery of grace that motivates him. And then oftentimes I think we find it difficult to pray. Don't you find it difficult to pray? We, we want to pray. We've got good intentions in prayer. But what is it that's going to move us to prayer? What's going to be our reason or our cause? And in verse 14, Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knee. It's the grace of God, this mystery of God working that causes him to move to this place of prayer. 
So in verse 1 through verse 7, we're going to look at the mystery revealed. Paul's going to describe how this grace was revealed in his own life. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. So Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. It takes us back to the end of chapter 2, where Paul describes this new humanity, where it's not Jew, it's not Gentile, it's the church of God that we're the habitation of God, that God lives inside of us. And then Paul says, because of the church, because of this Jew-Gentile church, I'm willing to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Most Bible teachers, scholars, commentaries believe that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians while he was imprisoned in Rome, around 62 AD. There's no doubt that this letter is one of his prison epistles because he mentions it on three different occasions. So here he is, he's a prisoner, and the main reason that he's persecuted is because of the Gentiles, that he took the gospel to the Gentiles. This wasn't popular in two senses, that there was a prejudice towards Gentiles, but also Paul would write to them, Gentile believers, and say, you don't have to keep the law. Well, this made Orthodox Jews really, really angry to the point where they imprisoned him and wanted to kill him. What I love the most about verse 1 is what's tucked in this phrase, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. You could almost miss it. He's not saying, I'm a prisoner to the Judaizers. I'm a prisoner to to Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner to Jesus Christ. And that's difficult to do. To take your suffering and realize, I'm bound to Christ. I'm not bound to my circumstance. Because a lot of times we might say, well, I'm a prisoner to this really unfair boss. I'm a prisoner to this really old car that half the time it works and other times it doesn't. I'm a prisoner to my body and the physical ailments that I have and this disease that afflicts me every day. Uh, That's what I'm a prisoner to. I'm a a prisoner to the political situation. Uh, You fill in the blank of, of something that bothers you, some type of suffering in our life, and we go, well, that's really what has confound me. But Paul says, no, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ because he knows that God has the control, that God is the one who reigns in his life. And he's saying, really, it's God who's ordained, who's allowed, who's chosen for me to be here. And I'm okay with it. And I'm trusting the Lord in it. Not that it isn't difficult, not that it isn't easy, but he's come to accept that God wants him to be there. The book of Job is really challenging when you stop and think about it. When Job loses his children, when he loses his possessions, he loses his health, all he has is his wife who turns to him and says, Job, let's just get this over with. Curse God and die. Let's be done with this, right? And Job says, the Lord gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. God, you've given me paradise. You've given me a great set of circumstances. I praise you. God, you've taken those away. I praise you. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm bound to Jesus Christ. In verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace, of which was given to me for you. Dispensation is a general state of ordering things. So grace is the way that God has chosen to relate to us during this period of time. It's referred to as the church age or the dispensation of grace. And throughout the scriptures, it's not that God has changed his mind. In his revelation of himself, he's dealt with us according to different emphasis. What do I mean? 
When you go to the Old Testament, what's the way that God had communicated himself? Through the law. And that's a very necessary dispensation. It's a necessary period of time where God's saying, all right, you get to try this by system of works. And we realize that failed miserably. I can't do this through, through works. And it set us up to the point where we're ready to receive grace. So there's this unfolding message of the Bible. When it comes to the book of Revelation, we see God relating to humanity differently, not meaning that the message of salvation has changed, but God chooses to pour out his wrath. He, he chooses to pour out his justice. And Paul says, this is the dispensation of the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. He knows that it's been given to him personally for the Gentile churches, for those that don't know Christ as their Savior. It wasn't always easy for Paul to own going to the Gentiles. He wanted to see the Jews saved because he was a Jew, to the point where he even writes in the book of Romans and says, God, you can blot my name out of your book for the salvation of the children of Israel. That's an intense amount of love. But God said, nope, I want you to go to the Gentiles. And that's where he found most of his fruit. Where God calls you and calls me oftentimes is not always our first choice. Have you experienced that? God, I didn't really want to do this. I didn't think I'd be good at this. I wanted someone else to to do this. But the Lord says, this is what I have for you. But grace is given, not just for our benefit, so we can pour it out to others. Grace will take on a different Meaning in our lives will become more powerful, more palatable if we share it with others, if we pass it on to others. Verse 3 How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So Paul says, I've received this mystery, and by me sharing with you, I hope that you'll understand this mystery of grace as well. And throughout the New Testament, this word mystery is used. In Mark 4, verse 11, Jesus speaks and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things comes in parables. So Jesus says to his disciples, the kingdom of God is a mystery. Not that it's difficult to figure out, but it's something that God has to reveal to you. The Father has to reveal to you. He says, disciples, be blessed. The Father has revealed this to you. This mystery is defined in 1 Timothy 3. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, believed among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That succinctly describes the gospel. God came in human flesh. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again so that all that believed are saved. So this mystery is the gospel. This mystery is grace. Colossians 1 verse 26 says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that a little bit of a mystery? Where you're going, how could Christ live in us? But Christ lives in you. He lives in me, and he is the hope of glory. So great is this mystery of godliness. In verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, and has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ 
through the gospel. So it's not that God changed his mind. This message has been foretold in the Old Testament, but was not seen clearly until this time. Think of a a new car that's coming out. Maybe it's a 2017. You pick your favorite make, your favorite model. You've seen the commercials where it just has the sheet over the car, and it says, coming soon. And eventually, the veil's lifted. Eventually, the blanket's taken off, and it's clearly revealed. And that's the gospel. Peter put it this way, that the prophets looked intently to look forward to when Christ would come. They knew that these promises were there of the coming Messiah, but they didn't know exactly how it was going to unfold. In the same way that we look at future prophecy. We study future prophecy, and we have an idea of how it's all going to come down. But ultimately, if we're humble and we're honest, there's a a mystery to it. There's an aspect that God is God, and he's going to to do what he wants wants to do. And Paul's emphasizing to them, again, this point in verse 6, that you're living in this time where God has made the church, Jews and Gentiles alike. He's wanting them to appreciate and walk in the unification of Gentiles and Jews. In verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Now we think of the word minister as a pastor, someone who works at a church, a minister. Someone came up to you and said, I'm going to be a minister, you'd think, oh, okay, they want to be a pastor. But this word in the Greek, it means servant. So think about it in that context. Because of the grace of God, because of the gospel, of which I became a servant according to the gift of grace. And God would intend that for all of us, that we would choose to allow him to be our master, that we would serve him by loving people and serving people, esteeming others better than ourselves. So the mystery of God, as it's being revealed, should stir in us a servant's heart, a desire to wash feet. You think of Jesus, John 13. He knows his time of crucifixion is coming. The disciples need their feet washed. This is something that normally the servants would do, but Jesus sees dirty feet, and what does he do? He goes and he washes their feet. Now, this wasn't overly symbolic at the time. Now it can be. But then it was a real need. These guys are walking on dirty streets and they have dirty feet and they're coming to enjoy a meal and they needed their feet washed. And that's the way God wants us to live our lives. Do you see dirt around you? Do I see dirt around me? Are we gonna point it out? Are we gonna humble ourselves and say, I'm gonna take care of this need. I'm gonna meet this need that's right in front of me because of the grace of God, it's impacting me. And the wonderful promise of verse seven is the power of God. The grace of God also provides the power to be able to serve others. So what would this mean for Paul? He's saying, because of this mystery, I'm in prison and I'm okay with it. I'm bound to Christ. I've chosen to be a servant of God. How much daily basis of God's power do you think he needed in order to walk this out in prison and serve the Roman guards and serve the fellow prisoners? This is not easy. And you're saying, man, I feel like I'm in a prison And don't talk to me about serving others. Well, you've got to wrestle with the Apostle Paul on that. Because if if he's writing this from a Hawaii vacation, it might be difficult to hear. But he's, he's living it. He's in his own prison. He's in his own difficulty. And he's saying, God's power is effective in me. So the grace that saves us also gives us the strength to be able to, to serve others. 
I don't know about you, but a lot of times it happens as we make a choice of the will that God provides his power. We're tired, we're weary, we're worn out. We say, God, I'm going to choose to honor you. I'm going to choose to serve others. And we find God's power working in and through us. So from verse 8 down to verse 13, we now look at uh, the grace of God applied. The mystery of God applied. How do we take this mystery and how is it applied to our lives? How is it applied to others? To me who am less than the least of all the saints. What's Paul saying here? He considered himself to be the least of all the saints and the least of all the believers. Do you think he really meant this? That he really believed this about himself? Or it's just like a nice hallmark greeting. It's a nice way to sign off on an email. You know, I'm the least of of all the saints. I I believe that Paul really meant it. You know, and he's saying, hey, God's grace has been given to me to be a servant, but I'm not puffed up about it. I realize my own depravity. I realize my own sinfulness. I was reading a commentary on Ephesians in, in the evenings and was talking about how in the book of Ephesians, it's all about God meeting us in our messes. That's really what we see in the book of Ephesians, especially in these first three chapters. That God loved us while we were yet sinners. He's raised us up to be seated with Christ in, in the heavenlies. And how easy it is to go through the book of Ephesians and not really think that the depravity tends to apply towards me. Like, look back at chapter two. Okay, let's look back at chapter two, the first few verses. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. That's me. I'm depraved to the core. And if I'm honest, I know my own sin struggles. You know your own sin struggles. As believers, our own sin struggles. And if we're aware of the kind of grace that God gives us today, present tense, it's easy to come to this kind of conclusion of I'm the least of the saints. But over time of walking with the Lord, as we read these passages, we go, oh yeah, that applies to somebody else. Or that applied to some other time in my life before I received Christ as my Savior. This is present tense. Paul's saying, I am the least of the saints, of all the saints. He could have been very prideful. God used him to plant so many churches. It feels like Paul sneezes and people come to Christ. You know what I'm saying? It's like everywhere he goes, all these amazing things are happening. But how he really viewed himself is a servant and also the least of the saints. The grace of God, this mystery, had humbled him. As you look at these autobiographical statements of Paul, they start in 1 Corinthians, and there's three of them. First is in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 9. You might want to write these down, because I think it speaks of Paul's journey with the Lord. At first, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. And we see that humility in his life. He goes, you know what? All the other apostles... They're a lot greater than me. I'm the least of the apostle. And that was one of Paul's first letters. Now we find in Ephesians, later on in his writings, he says, I'm the least of the saints. Even another statement of humility. And then his last letter, 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. So we got 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. Ephesians 3, verse 8. 
And then 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners. And that's one of his last writings to Timothy. And he says, you know what? If I'm honest, I'm really good at sinning. I'm the chief of sinners. Now, what happened to Paul? Was he rebelling? Was he going off the tracks? Had he fallen away? Had he backslidden? No, that's not the case at all. As we look at his life, he continued to get closer and closer to the Lord. And as he got closer and closer to the Lord, he saw more and more of his own sinfulness. And isn't that true? You know, really, the more that we walk with the Lord, the closer we draw near to him, we realize, man, I'm a lot more sinful than I ever realized, than I ever thought. God, you've been so gracious to me, and you've been so good to me. There was a famous conductor, and he finished his concert, and everybody just roared in applause. They're clapping and clapping and clapping, and this is going on for some time, and it finally comes to a lull. He turns his back to the audience, and he looks at the orchestra, and he says, I am nothing, you are nothing, but Beethoven, he is everything. Because they were doing Beethoven's work. They were doing Beethoven's pieces. And that's what we need to remember. I'm nothing, you're nothing, but Jesus Christ is everything. Amen? In verse 9, or continuing with verse 8, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the purpose of the grace, the purpose of the mystery, that God saves us, that he empowers us, gives us what we don't deserve, so we could preach, that we could be a herald, that our life could be a witness of Jesus Christ. God's put unbelievers in our life so that we could declare to them the unsearchable riches of Christ, that we could talk about with them how good it is to know Christ. Isn't it wonderful that Christ forgives our sins? Isn't it wonderful that Christ never leaves us or forsakes us? This word unsearchable, it literally means untraceable, untrackable, to, to the point where you can't even begin to fully describe or comprehend all of the riches of Christ. For all of eternity, we're going to be discovering the riches of Christ. To try to define it, it's saving riches. The riches of Christ saves us. It's sanctifying riches, which means it makes us more like himself. It's relational riches. How much has Christ enriched your relationships? Can you bear witness with that? that it's made your marriage better. So you couldn't even begin to describe what it'd be like without Christ. You're single. It's, it's blessed your relationships far, far better. It's relational riches. It's practical riches. And ultimately, it's eternal riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery. You guys tracking with this word mystery? It's God revealing the kingdom to us. It doesn't come from natural revelation, something previously hidden that's been made known. And with the mystery of the grace of God, the gospel comes fellowship, fellowship with the Father. This fellowship's described, says, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ, to the intent, now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by all of the churches all by the church to the principalities and power in heavenly places. So from the beginning of the ages, it's hidden in Christ. All things are accomplished in Christ. And this is the intent, this is the reason, to the manifold wisdom of God. So his wisdom expressed, his wisdom on steroids, that it may be made known to the church, and then the church makes it known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. 
So we experience salvation. We experience the grace of God. We make it known in all places, including in the heavenly realm. This means the angels are intrigued about your salvation. That's what's being declared in verse 10. It's also declared in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It says, To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, that were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. <laughs> There's a, a realm watching our lives that we're not even aware of. The angels are going, wow, this is intriguing. God loves him. God loves Eric. God loves this gang they call Rocky Mountain Calvary. He gave his son for them. Christ lives inside of them. Imagine what a mystery it is for the angels. They see Christ in all of his glory, seated next to the Father. They saw Christ when he created all things, spoke all things into existence. Also saw Christ born, placed in a manger in Bethlehem, humbly crucified on the cross, then to rise again, an angel there to announce the resurrection of Christ, seeing people repent from sin and believe in Christ coming and living inside of them. And it's not like Christ waits to come and live inside of us until we've got everything all cleared out, until we've got our act together. That doesn't happen this side of eternity. He's committed to us, and he's living inside of us, and they're going, wow, this is amazing. This is, this is phenomenal, and we're declaring that. So your life is a testimony to the angels, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just meditate on that for a little bit. All of the purposes of the Father, the internal purposes of the Father, are accomplished in Christ Jesus. So all of his purposes, eternity past, all of his purposes, eternity future, have already been fulfilled and accomplished in Christ Jesus. His purpose is fulfilled in this mystery. In verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. This goes back to the fellowship that's described, the mystery of the fellowship. It brings us into fellowship with the Father. Because you're in Christ, you've got boldness, you've got access to be able to come, come to the Father. What a privilege that God would give that to us. You belong there. It's hard to imagine you belong in the presence of God because of who you are in Christ. You can come, come boldly. You, I, I grew up in a time of landlines. Did you? So some of you may not know what a landline is. Right? I, I can't remember the total circumstance, but one of my kids saw a phone with a cord for the first time, you know, that was like, connected and they're totally freaked out they're like what in the world is this you know there's there's this court and my dad was an engineer for his his profession and you could call his his work and, and then there would you would get this you know if you know the extension you you call and you you type in the extension and it would ring my my dad's desk and they did government work and never got to go inside of his work or any of those things and didn't know fully what they did inside of their contracts. But 
most of the time, if I picked up the phone and typed his extension, he would pick up. And if I left a message, he would call me back. Like, he made it a point in the midst of his busy schedule to say, you know, you've got access. You, you, and, it, you know, he didn't, he didn't sound rushed. You know, he wasn't one of those things of like, well, well, why'd you call? Well, you know, it was like, okay, what's going on? All right, we'll talk to you later. Now, you know, have the conversation. That was always a good feeling to know, hey, I've got, got access. You probably have some friends that you know, if, if you needed them, you have access to them. You know, if you texted them and said, could you please call? I need some prayer. I'm having a difficult time. That it wouldn't be days till you heard back from them. You know, if you left them a voicemail, that they would actually check it. And then you've got some other friends that you know don't check voicemail. They don't ever check voicemail. Wouldn't matter if it was Obama calling them. Maybe they especially wouldn't check it if it was. <laughs> or, but they don't check voicemail. But then you know, hey, I have access. Because of the relationship, I, I have boldness. How much more so with the Father that we're invited into that place of fellowship. Paul then turns it on the church of Ephesus and says, therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. It must have been a difficult time for the church of Ephesus to think about Paul, their pastor, being in prison. An easy time for them to lose heart. An easy time to say, is the cause worth it? Is it worth it for me to suffer in my life because of Christ. And Paul says, I don't want you to lose heart because of my suffering. We can relate. Family member, a close friend, spouse, kids is going through a hard time and it can totally bum you out, can it? You're like, man, they're hurting, they're in prison, they're going through a hard time. And it's important for us to remember what God's doing in the midst of the suffering. And Paul says the suffering is for you. The mystery is revealed through suffering. He says, you're going to be edified, and he's speaking to believers. Believers are going to be built up as they see the mystery manifested through suffering. We've witnessed that as well. You watch someone you're close to who's a believer that goes through a hard time, and Christ is manifested through their life, and we grow from it. Unbelievers see the glory of Christ. Now what we see is the mystery shared in verses 14 through 21. I love this section of scripture. It's so applicable about what to pray for, for others. The reason that I've titled this section, these verses, The Mystery Shared, is because the way that we share this mystery of grace with others is primarily through prayer. I think one of the reasons that Paul was so effective in his communication of the gospel and his communication of the grace of God wasn't necessarily that he was a great orator wasn't that he had the most polished illustrations or the best sense of humor, but he was a man who prayed for those that he was sharing with. He loved them. He cared for them. He understood that there was a spiritual element to this, that, that it wasn't just like teaching chemistry, that it wasn't just teaching somebody the rules of the game, saying this is how basketball ball works. He knew it was much more than that, that it had to be a work of the Spirit. And so he would pray for the churches that he would minister to. We know that Paul had a healthy prayer life because in all of the epistles, he's writing of how he's praying for the churches. He's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He's not making this stuff up. 
I can imagine him going to a city that he's longing to see reached for the love of Jesus Christ, and he prayed, asking that God would do a work, that God would open up the eyes of the blind, that he'd give people ears to hear. So what I want you to do is to look at this prayer and to pray it for those that you love. Paul is praying for those that he loves. If you love this church, if you say, you know, this is my home church. It's not a perfect church, but it's my home church. And God's used this in my life. I want to be a blessing to this church. Pray this over our church. If you have a heart for Uganda, and we have our missions team that's out there, you can pray for them. We got a a call today from, from Dan Johnson, and his bag got stolen with his passport and his son's passport. So now they're headed to the embassy to try to get all that sorted out. There's, there's challenges and there's difficulties. And if you have a heart for the church of Uganda, pray this for them. If you have a heart for the church in Chihuahua, you've never been there, but you've heard the testimonies, you've got a heart for it. You've got the heart for the church of Colorado Springs. Whoever you love, pray this for. And so we find in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bowing before the Lord is helpful because it shows our passion, it shows our priority, our dependence upon God. It's a little easier to focus when we're kneeling and we're praying. Our prayers are directed to our Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, which art in heaven. He's the Father of our Lord, which means Jesus is our Master. Jesus means Savior. Christ means Messiah of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. (laughs) So we're all linked to the Father. He's our Father. And because he's our Father, all believers are gathered, those that are in heaven and on earth, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. That God would answer these prayers according to his endless resources. He he has all of the ability. He's not limited by our difficulties. And so here's the first thing to pray. Pray for strength. It's a prayer for strength, if you're taking notes, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So he's thinking of the church of Ephesus, thinking about this mystery, and his words can only go so far. His writing can only go so far. So now he's going to share the mystery. And how's he going to share the mystery? He's going to share it through prayer, and he says, God, would you please strengthen them in their inner man through your Holy Spirit? So what's the inner man? Everything inside that you can't see (laughs) that's most important. So that'd be our mind, our emotions, our will, our soul, our spirit. And it's so easy for us to get discouraged, depressed. Sometimes we don't even share it with others. We don't want to share it with others. We, We share that I'm doing okay, everything's fine, but inside we're completely discouraged. Other times we're just a little bit weary, aren't we? We're wore out. We're tired. And God wants to strengthen our inner man through the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that there's a lot of Wednesday nights when we gather, if you come on a regular regular basis, the middle of the week, where you come into the sanctuary and you sit down. It's the first time that you've sat down all day and you just go, oh, I'm tired. We have a couch right back here where we pray before services. And we found it on Craigslist. And it's just a deep couch, and it is the sleeper couch. And a lot of times when we're gathering with the worship team and praying over the services, I'll sit on that couch on a Wednesday night, and I'll just go, oh, man, I am tired, <laughs> you know? And it just hits me. And it, we, we probably need to just get rid of it and sit on the floor, you know? It, 
And these blue chairs can become like your sleeper couch, can't they? Oh, I'm, I'm tired, you know. May God just strengthen you. May he strengthen your inner man. And notice, all of these things are something that comes from him that doesn't come from us. It's from his riches of glory. I'm not conjuring up strength, and it's happening by his spirit. And in John 7, Jesus speaks about the spirit, and he says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke concerning the spirit. The spirit's described as living water. So God is pouring his spirit into us. He's strengthening us with his spirit in our inner man. Pray for strength. And then pray for fellowship. It's a prayer for fellowship that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Not fellowship with other believers necessarily, but fellowship with Christ. That Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, wait a second. They're already believers. Christ already lives inside of them. Dwell means to make his home. That Christ would be at home in their hearts. This is a great prayer. I mean, what part of my heart is Christ not comfortable with? Where he's not made to feel at home. And that's the essence of this prayer. That I would dwell with Christ in my heart. That there wouldn't be any part of my life that I'm not able to dwell with Christ with. It's a prayer for fellowship. And then it's a prayer for love. That you being rooted and grounded in love. What a great visual. Paul's so good at creating these visual pictures. You think of roots. And those roots provide the nourishment. And what's going to nourish believers as we pray for believers and we pray for one another, that they would know the love of God, that their spiritual roots would go deep down into the love of God, that they would know God's unconditional love, and that would nourish their souls. You know what's going to nourish you more than anything else is knowing that you're loved by the Lord. Whether you've had a good day or a bad day, whether you've had your quiet time or you haven't quieted your time, quieted your time, had quiet time, that you're rooted in, in the love of God. Also, the roots, they provide stability, don't they? That what causes you to weather the storm. God, I know you love me. To be grounded in the love of God. This part of the church building was completed in 2008, March of 2008. So we just hit eight years in, in this particular sanctuary. And I remember very distinctly when this was built because it was a field and our sanctuary was in what is now the children's ministry. And when they laid the foundation for this building. They just kept digging down and down and down and down. And it happened to be the winter of 2007 where we had tons of snow. You know, just great timing, right? Just get the building permit, then all the snow happens, and they're trying to get this building grounded. And then these two buildings, they meet up. They're two separate buildings that are, that are joined together. That's the old and this is the new. That's the old man, this is the new man over here. But joining those two buildings together was difficult. And, and the work that they had to do on the foundations to make that take place, it's such an important part of the building process. And for us as believers that we're grounded in the love of God, it's our strength and our stability. The, the building's only as good as the foundation. Continues with this prayer for love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and the depth, and the height. Why does Paul do this? Why does he pray that the church would know the dimensions of God's love? 
He's continuing with his building illustration. He's thinking, I want him to know how deep God's love is, how long God's love is, how high God's, God's love is. This makes me think of the cross. How deep is the love of God? So deep that Jesus' feet would be nailed to the cross. How high is God's love? It's so high that he would have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. How wide is the love of God? So wide that his arms would be stretched out upon the cross. Do you know the dimensions of God's love? Because when you really stop and think about it, it's unmeasurable. You can't measure it. It's beyond what could fit into a human measurement. And that's where Paul goes next. To know the love of God which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So you're praying. I'm praying. Easy to get distracted when we're praying. And so this guides us. Lord, I'm praying for strength. God, would you give my wife strength in her inner man? Lord, thank you so much for the body at Rocky Mountain. Would you strengthen them in their inner man by your spirit? Lord, I know this Uganda team's had a long trip. They're having some difficulties. Would you strengthen them through their inner man? God, would you help us to know your love? The height, the depth, the width of your love. Would you help us to be rooted and grounded in your love? Would you help us to have fellowship with you? And we just begin to pray this passage over those that we love. The love of God, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It's a prayer of fullness. So knowing God's love is not just an intellectual thing, but it goes beyond our intellect and touches our hearts that our lives would be filled with the fullness of God. It's always a convicting question. What am I full of? (laughs) Myself, most of the time, right? A bunch of nonsense. Oh, I want to be filled with the, the love of God. God, would you fill us with your love? May we be filled with the fullness of God. All that you are, would you fill our lives up with that? Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, that's pretty incredible. So what we can even begin to imagine, what we would ask, what we would think, he can do above and beyond what we would even be able to ask or think beyond our expectations and our limitations according to the power that works in us. Again, it's back to personal, of his power working in our hearts and our lives. And it ends with this. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why would God answer these prayers? So that he could be glorified. Wouldn't God be glorified in a church that's strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't God be glorified in a group of believers that know his love? That are fellowshipping with Christ where Christ is is dwelling in them? Yeah, he would be. And so he receives glory. And then look at the end of this. It says, in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. So God is going to glorify himself through his church in every generation forever and ever. For all of the faults that the church has, and we've earned it throughout church history and presently, we can say that God has been faithful through all of the church's brokenness. Amen? Amen. And the church is going to continue. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Jesus is going to continue to save people. I love it how in countries that are closed and you can't share the gospel, that God's like, hey, I'm just going to do what I want to do and bring a bunch of people to myself, like we see in China. There's reports now that of any place in the world, the most people that are currently getting saved are in Iran. That makes no logical sense. 
That's just God glorifying himself, saying, I'm going to bring people uh, to myself for my glory. He'll continue to build his church. So as we close tonight, we're going to apply this passage. We're just going to take a moment to pray. Let's pray for strength, pray for God's love, pray for fellowship over the believers that we love. So I'm going to lead us in prayer and encourage you to to pray with me. Father, we bow before you right now. You're our dad. You're the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that because of who we are in Jesus, that we have boldness to come to you, that we have access to you. Thank you that you have invited us to this place of fellowship with you. As believers come to mind, pray for strength in their life. Pray that they would be strengthened in their inner man by the Holy Spirit. Pray for fellowship. Pray over their fellowship with Jesus. Pray that they would dwell with Christ, that Christ would be at home in them. Ask God that they would be rooted and grounded in love, that their strength, their stability, their identity would be found in the love of God. If you have kids and grandkids, pray pray that over your kids and grandkids right now. Father, we pray that over our children's ministry, over the youth ministry, junior high, high school, college. So many competing voices, so many counterfeit loves that are getting their attention. And we just ask in Jesus' name that the children of RMC would be rooted and grounded in love as they're hearing the message of Christ, that it wouldn't be head knowledge, but it would resonate in their hearts. We pray over the youth ministry, the high school room, the junior high room, God. We ask that you would speak to them, that you do a special work right now. We know that the youth ministry is in transition and new junior high pastor. And well, we just ask that you would really bless, that you would really move, that they'd be rooted and grounded in love. We pray that for us as adults in this sanctuary, as we meet, that we wouldn't be rooted in opinions, rooted in legalism, but we would be rooted and grounded in, in your love. May we comprehend the height and the depth and the width of your love. Would you be gracious to give us greater understanding of your love? As God continues to put believers on your heart and mind, just pray for fullness, that they would be filled with the fullness of God. We thank you that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask and think for your glory. Would you build our faith? May we believe that you answer prayer. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.